Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So today we have Layla Lalami on the show. Layla is a Moroccan-American writer and the author of three previous novels, including the multi-award-winning The Moore's Account. Her essays and opinion pieces have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and many others. She's also a recipient of a number of prestigious fellowships, including the Fulbright and the Guggenheim. She is currently a professor of writing at UC Riverside, and she joins us today to talk about her novel, The Other Americans. I really enjoyed this book. It was a real page turner. It was a, a real page turner. And I was also excited to read what is kind of a detective novel in some ways, a love story in other ways, and then a sort of realist examination of the various ways in which people become Americans and also like form an American identity. Mm, well said. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good description of this book. And after our conversation with Layla, we'll also be hearing from Joe Giese talking about her mother and their relationship in, in a kind of post-Mother's Day celebration. Yeah, sorry moms, we missed Mother's Day, but we're arriving a week late with a little Mother's Day conversation with Joe, as you said, Kate, and we're going to be talking about the lessons we learned from our moms and well, the lessons Joe learned from hers, which she included in this new book, Never Sit If You Can Dance. Okay, great. Well, let's get to both those interviews now. Let's do it. We have Layla Lalami in the studio with us today. She's the author of many books, but her most recent novel is The Other Americans. Layla, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by just talking briefly about this book. Would you give us an idea of, very quickly, what happens in this book and maybe some of the main characters? Okay. So The Other Americans basically begins with the death in a hit-and-run accident of a Moroccan immigrant. And the story takes place in a small town in the Mojave. And so I'm not spoiling anything. This is revealed in the first paragraph of the book. And because he dies in this accident, it's very suspicious. His daughter, who's a musician, she lives in Oakland, is forced to return home to this small town that she sort of thought she had left behind for good. And so it's a book a bit about returning home, finding out her father has died and kind of the process of grieving, but also figuring out like exactly what happened. Is it just an accident or is it a crime, something more sinister? And the story is basically told from multiple perspectives of people who are connected to this immigrant. I mentioned his daughter, but also his wife, who's now his widow. Her name is Mariam. His other daughter, Salma, a neighbor. So this immigrant is a restaurant owner. So the person who owns the business next door is also one of the narrators, the detective, and others, basically, who are connected to him. And when did you make the decision to tell the story through multiple perspectives, or did you always know you would 
Well, from, like that. Yeah. So my previous book had been told from the first person, one single narrator, 16th century. It was like this very immersive experience. And so for this one, I knew I wanted to do something completely different. Originally, I had three main characters. Nora, I mentioned, the musician, her love interest, and the detective. So basically, one was basically a story of grief, one was a story of love, and one was the mystery. So those are kind of the reasons why I settled on them. But as I started working on the book, and I got to the third draft, and I shared it with my editor, and I kind of thought about it, I realized that I had actually been restricting myself, and that one of the themes of the book, which is this sort of impossibility of knowing what other people are going through in their lives, was really not coming through from just the three characters. And so I expanded it, and that's how I ended up with the nine. And so what the effect of it, really, that I was trying to achieve is that the reader gets a very intimate experience with each of them, but the characters between themselves don't have that intimacy. It's an intimacy that's shared with the reader, sort of. And so each of them really is experiencing life in sort of like solitude, like everything that is happening to them, they think that other people are not going through, essentially. But the reader is seeing the bigger picture. Did you begin with this idea of other Americans? And I think we can get into what that means in the context of the book. But did you start with that? At the beginning, really, all I wanted was to write about this death and this story of grieving because it had been inspired by something that happened to me. So in 2014, I was on vacation when I got a text saying that my father was in the hospital and that he was basically dying and I had to go home in a hurry. And thankfully, he's fine. He's recovered. He's great. But that fear was something that stayed with me, and that was what propelled me to write the book. And it was only after I had done, like I said, two or three drafts before some of the other themes in the book, other than the idea of like being an immigrant and this idea that you're far from your loved ones when they need you. It was only after the third or fourth draft that I started to see other themes in the book. Mm -hmm. And that's where this idea of other Americans came from. Once I started expanding to the other characters, I realized that somewhat organically, I had settled on people who at some point in their lives had all experienced some kind of dislocation. They had either migrated from another country or they had moved from another city internally in the United States or they, you know, one of the characters is a veteran of the Iraq war, so he's been sent abroad and brought back. And what does that experience of being pulled out of home and having to live somewhere else, what does that do to each of these characters, to their sense of who they are, to their Mm -hmm. sense of identity? And once I saw that that was something that had developed in the characters, then I ran with it and kind of developed it more in the book. And that's where the idea of other Americans came from. Would you tell us a little bit about your family's immigration story? Oh, my family's not an immigrant, but I am. You are. Yes. Tell us about about your story. So I was born and raised in Morocco and lived in the same house my entire life. And if you had told me when I was 15 years old that I'd be sitting here talking to you, it would have just blown my mind because it just was not something that I thought was in the cards for me. So what happened was after I did my undergraduate degree, I majored in English in Morocco. And 
I went to study in London, and after that, one of my professors in London said, oh, you know, you should consider applying for PhD programs in the U.S. And so then I ended up applying and coming to do a PhD here Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. And it was a couple of years after I arrived here that I met someone, yada, 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 and here we are. (laughs) Uh, So that's why you stayed. That's why I stayed. And so it was really by chance. It wasn't something that had been by choice or by plan. And when you're younger, obviously you're in love and it's like, I always liken it to like being on drugs because you're not even like you're, it's kind of a high, right? And I'm, you know, it's a decision that I'm very happy I made, you know, I'm very happy with it. But at the same time, you know, as you get older, you start to realize the ripple effects of that decision. However happy it may have been, there are ripple effects. And for example, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that, you know, I live 6,000 miles away from my parents. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to like pick up and visit on short notice. So that's why I have that fear that stays with me. And it's kind of like this discomfort that I wanted to write about in the book. So one of the characters, Nora, the daughter of Mm -hmm. Driss, Mm -hmm. the man who's killed Killed. in the book, Uh Uh she relates her early stories of being in Yucca Valley Mm -hmm. and being made fun of Mm -hmm. and feeling very different from other people. Mm -hmm. So since you're saying, you know, you came here much more as an adult, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's purely fictional or if when you came here, you also felt some alienation from American culture or were made to feel very much like, oh, the token, like, oh, we're talking about the Middle East. Layla, what do you think? Let's all look at Layla. (laughs) As you mentioned, it happens to her in the book or even now, you know, as that. I think it happens all the time. The thing is, is that when we think, if you think about American identity or if you close your eyes or you think about like American, you know, Toni Morrison has this saying where, everyone who is not white has to hyphenate. So that's why you have Native American and African American and Asian American. So the identity that we associate with American is very much white identity. Mm -hmm. That is the context in which we live. And as an immigrant, when I came here, however familiar American culture was to me, and it was familiar to me because I grew up watching American TV series and listening to American music, What I could not have anticipated is how people would react to me when I came here. And very much, you know, there are people who think it's extremely funny to make fun of your names. Oh, it has all of these L's in it. You know, like all kinds of things. So what do you think about the agricultural policy of Morocco in the 1970s? Actual question that was asked (laughs) at a literary reading. Or the other opposite of that, I would be at a literary reading and somebody would ask me to talk about ISIS. So I do get that. So it wasn't too difficult to rely on my imaginative empathy to see with a character who was born here and who has a name like Nora's Hor Grawi, what she might be going through, if, especially if it was in a small town. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the inspiration of those chapters that sort of flash back to her upbringing. One of the things that this book also touches on is what you had been saying earlier is the ripple effects of various decisions Mm -hmm. that people make. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the characters keep struggling with, what if I had done this? Mm -hmm. What if I had called? So one of the, a Mexican immigrant really struggles because Mm -hmm. he, this is also, I don't think, giving anything away because it's part of the catalyst of Mm -hmm. his character. Mm -hmm. But he sees the accident and he struggles with, well, what do I do? I can't possibly risk my family. I don't have documents. But... There's also this moral imperative. And so one of the things that this book, I think, definitely deals with is 
the ripple effects of making decisions and also the moral effects of making these decisions. Yeah, I mean, and one of the themes, too, in this book is sort of like the ethics of witnessing. Like, Mm. if you Mm -hmm. are not a participant in a crime in any way, but you are a witness to it, what is your responsibility as a human being towards what happened? So in my previous book, The Moore's Account, which is basically the story of this expedition that came to what is now Florida in the 16th century, and it was a Spanish expedition, there's this Moroccan character, and this is based on a true story, and he's not part of the conquest. He was a slave, but he is a witness to that conquest. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, you know, what more implications does it have for him? And in this book, it's kind of a theme that I pick up because this undocumented immigrant witnesses this crime, and coming forward means it puts him potentially at risk. So the book is set in 2014, even before the sort of new powers that ICE has nowadays. But it still is, you know, a concern for the character because he would come into contact with law enforcement. And then the other character, so Jeremy, the Iraq war veteran, he also witnesses something when he's deployed. What was his responsibility? Did Mm -hmm. he do anything about it? And if he did or didn't, you know, what are sort of the consequences for him as a human being and on his soul, really, and that he has to live with? So it's something that the book kind of returns to a few times. And do you think, not to repeat what we were just talking about, but do you think that the kind of like moral imperative or living in a town with people, do you think that's any different in America than, for instance, what you grew up with in Morocco? I don't know if you grew up in a small Rabat, is that where yeah, you're Yeah, so it's the capital. Yeah. So it's a large city. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. I mean, have you noticed any difference of how involved people are in strangers' lives here versus oh. where you're from? Or, oh. you know, helping people, kind of giving... Well, there's two things going on there. Like in terms of like the moral implications of like witnessing something, I would say that it's basically the same. So, for example, in Morocco, if you in the book, there's these protests that take place in 1981. And the main character, the guy who dies, he's a young man. He's a graduate student and he sees sort of what's happening. And it's something that he also has to live with, like what he's witnessed, who he has left behind, and it goes into that a bit. I would say that the moral choices for all of us, regardless of cultures, are present and are the same. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, there are cultural differences between where we put the dividing line between the private life and public life. So, for example, in Morocco, like... People would not talk about certain things on television the way that they would in America. And that was something that really stood out to me when I came to the United States is like with Oprah and Sally and Donahue. And like people are talking about like their very private lives in front of millions of people. And that's not something that where I'm from, like it's kind of a newer thing. It's not something that people are kind of used to. So I would say that that's one difference. However within your family and your neighbors, people do tend to be in your business a lot more. And people are kind of really involved in your life. And there is a greater sense of community. And if you need something, you go knock on your neighbor's door because your neighbor is going to be the very first person who can help you even in some sense much faster than even calling on a family member. And so people do tend to be involved with, they know what's going on in other people's lives around them. So it's just a different way in how we divide the private and the public, but on a small scale and on a large scale. Right. So there are cultural And places. those can have such huge implications. Of course, yeah. yeah, especially yeah. here, because there does seem to be in this town some isolation mm-hmm. among, as you're saying, no mm-hmm. one here. All the characters, although we are intimately connected with them, they feel that they're kind of alone and separate and you don't see that so much crossover. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the whole 
paradox, right, is that like no matter how much you love someone and no matter how much you know them or how many years you've spent with them, ultimately you're not inside their mind. You're not inside their heart. You don't really actually know what is going on in there. And then the book basically by doing this with nine characters is kind of showing all the different ways in which that's true. And then death is such a great prism for exploring how little you do know people because that often comes out. And I wanted to ask you, so Driss, the character, he is also given a voice here, (laughs) (laughs) which I think was interesting because, you know, we don't often associate the dead with being able to speak. So why did you (laughs) decide to let him serve as a narrator? So I was working on the different characters and then I finished a chapter and I started a new one and he just showed up Mm -hmm. and I was like okay let's do this and then I sent the manuscript to my agent she's like now wait a minute (laughs) she's like I thought he was dead why is there a chapter from his point of view I think it's because for me it was more fun frankly to dissociate myself from the constraints of social realism and to just sort of play with it it is fiction and I wanted to know what's going on in the mind of the character. And it's not without precedent to have dead characters who are narrating stories. I mean, it's been done in fiction. It's not like I'm not inventing anything. And in this book, it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I really wanted to, again, present a completely different perspective on the story. And his was so different because he's the one at the center of it and he has very different perspectives on things. And it does reveal how little his daughter really knows him, yeah. One of the things I was wondering throughout this book is the placement of the story in the desert. The desert really does play a major Mm -hmm. role Mm -hmm. in the novel. And it's kind of an uncanny place in some ways for this immigrant family. Why did you place this story in the desert? In the desert? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier I was born in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco, and then I've lived in London, and I've lived in L.A. So Mm -hmm. big, major cities, and I always thought of myself as a big city person, and I never thought that the desert would speak to me at all. And yet, about 10 years ago, we started, my husband and I started going out to the desert, and it, I don't know, I just, I loved the landscape, and I loved the silence, and I loved the fact that it requires you to pay a bit more attention in order to notice things and to see how full of life it really is. You know, it may seem dead, but it's actually really very much alive. And I wanted to set a story there because I love the landscape in the Mojave. So that's a personal reason. But then from a craft perspective, setting this book in a big city would have made it more difficult for me to make the mystery have personal implications for all of these characters Mm. because if it is a hit and run and you're in a city of 8 million (laughs) it could be anybody and it wouldn't create circumstances in which the characters from this family could potentially be interacting with people who are involved in this crime and I wanted to have that I wanted to have the suspense of it and the discomfort of it in the book and so the idea of the small town came about from that One of the events in the book, well, two questions. (laughs) One of the things that disrupts the family in this book is 9-11. When suddenly, and this makes this idea of the other American really literal, is that Driss has to put up an American flag above the pantry, is what his Mm -hmm. restaurant is called, to prove that he's one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. And partly that had been already an issue with the other place that he had run, Aladdin Donuts. Can you talk a little bit about how 9-11 shapes the story? 
Because it also seems to bring out another character that comes up later in the book that I also want to ask you about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I mentioned earlier that the book is set in 2014, and it wasn't entirely by coincidence. I had been interested in writing about the after effects of the Iraq War, which to my mind was one of the most significant political events in my life anyway. And I just think it's just had such a wide-ranging, generational, disastrous effect on the entire region. And I wanted to write about something that's that big over there in the Middle East and like what effect it has here. And so the book starts 10 years later. That's why there's a veteran in it and all of that. But in doing that, that meant that the characters were of a particular age, which meant I had to write about 9-11 and the effect of it on that. So it's all kind of connected because ultimately there is a road from 9-11 to the Iraq War, obviously. And so in writing about it, I asked myself, what is the effect of it on these people at that point in their lives? So you have a couple who by that point had already been living in the United States well over 20 years and had a business. As you see in the book, there is an effect for them. And Dries decides to basically make himself into, like, he puts a flag on his restaurant, something that his daughter resents, because she thinks that he's trying to prove something and he shouldn't have to prove anything. And then for the other characters in the book, it's also the beginning of that whole, well, I mean, I don't have another word for it, but basically all that hatred that you see in the news, and that's something that Jeremy and his family are exposed to daily on television. So 9-11 in the book is a catalyst. It is a moment where people are basically sort of finding their place within this big, large, like, American family. Like, where do I fit in all of this? And some people feel that they're more on the outside, and other people feel like they're more on the inside in this book. You were in the United States Mm -hmm. during Mm 9-11. What was your personal experience of it at the time, or did you feel that you had to then perform your mm, <laughs> love of the not, country more at all? N- <laughs> not so much. I mean, I, I remember the day, of course, like other people. I mean, I because we were on the West Coast, I mean, I was woken up by a ringing phone. It was my brother-in-law that said, turn on the television, something's happening. And that's, that's how I found out what was going on. And I do remember the days after, and that sort of the thing that stands out to me well, two things, the images, which were on a loop, and I can still remember seeing them over and over and over. And also that sort of like pressure, it was almost tangible, this pressure of like being patriotic. What does it mean to be patriotic? Unfortunately, for many people, it just meant being quiet, supporting whatever the government was doing and not questioning. And that's what patriotism meant at the time. And that's what led eventually to the Iraq war because any kind of dissent was perceived as basically treason. And so two years of that is eventually what led to the Iraq war, not questioning the intelligence, not questioning what we were being told. And one of the characters in this book twists that patriotism into white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it might not be that much of a twist, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) It might just be one and the same, but is a white supremacist. Mm -hmm. But you do dedicate a chapter, several chapters, Mm -hmm. to him Mm -hmm. and his mindset. Can you tell us a little bit about the empathy that you performed there? (laughs) (laughs) People actually, I've been asked this question quite a bit, you know, like, why include this character? And for me, 
I couldn't write a book that was set in a small town that dealt with these themes of immigration and war and not include that perspective because it is a perspective that exists in society and not including it means being blind to it and wishing that the reality were different. And the reality is what it is. These people live among us. These racists and white nationalists are perhaps living next door, perhaps your colleague at work, your kid's teacher. These are all possibilities. And so then the question is how to write about them. And the book is told in the first person, which meant that I had to use the I in writing about this character. And so I thought, you know, what's one way to do it? And that is, for me anyway, it was to go back to this person's past. I think we, all of us, are the sum of our experiences. We become who we are because of what we've experienced. So what events in his life have been formative? What has created that kind of mindset. And if I can pinpoint two or three things, then I at least have a way of starting in on this character. Writing from his perspective does not mean that I condone or agree or have any kind of sympathy for him. But it does mean, and that is my job as a writer, uh, it does mean the ability to speak in his voice and to include that voice in this book so that the book then leaves the reader with polyphony, like multiple voices for you to see what the situation is like. Do you have political applications in mind for empathy? Do you have some idea if we build a reserve of empathy where it could lead us, you know, as a country? Or is it more to you just about the world within the novel? It is mostly about the world in the novel. There is a difference between like being able to see something from another person's perspective and taking a stand on what that perspective might mean. This basically comes to the question of compromise, right? Like, are you able, like, if only we see what other people are going through, maybe we can compromise and all live together. And that only goes so far. It's impossible for me to compromise with someone who wishes I were to disappear, like a wisp of smoke. How can I compromise with a person who wants that? I can't. And the history of this country is filled with moments like these where there was no compromise, where in fact an entire civil war had to be fought because some people just would not agree that other people were human beings. And so there is this sense that empathy does not necessarily mean compromise. The only thing it means is the ability to see the events that we live in or the world that we live in from another person's perspective. And sometimes actually seeing it from that perspective can be illuminating and can help you better condemn <laughs> that perspective mm-hmm. and better, you know, be able to have a judgment about that person. Leila Lalami, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Leila Lalami. She's the author, most recently, of the novel, The Other Americans. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK and Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. You've been listening to our conversation with Leila Lalami, author of The Other Americans. Now we'll be hearing our conversation with Joe Giese, author of Never Sit If You Can Dance. We're excited to have Joe Giese with us in the studio today. Joe is an author and journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Vogue, the LA Review of Books, and NPR. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Never Sit If You Can Dance, a compendium of life lessons learned from her mother, Babe. 
Welcome to the show, Joe. Oh, it's a thrill to be here. So on the one hand, can can you just start off, open up for us a little bit? Because you you start the book by saying that you were fairly certain as a young woman that you didn't want to be like your mother. Instead, you wanted to be out in the world, kind of breaking stories, telling stories, and making a career for yourself. And you were somewhat horrified by the prospect of being just like your mom as a kind of housewife or a stay-at-home mom. But then something changed for you. Can yeah. you explain what happened? Right. But I, I was not somewhat horrified. I was uh, totally terrified. <laughs> I mean, I would look at her over there, you know, housewife, mom, stay at home and go, you know, Lord, I do not want to turn out like that. Yeah. And um, they were living in Houston at the time. And I left for New York City to be a journalist. And I thought, I am a journalist in New York City. I am not like that. Mm. And... What really happened, and there are these studies that show that usually by the time you're 30, a woman starts uh, accepting that she really is pretty much like her mom. For me, it took a co- <laughs> for me it took a couple more decades. So I'm a slow learner here, and I think one of the things is I looked in her closet once when I was visiting, and I thought, hey, you know what? all these clothes of hers, I like them. Like, <laughs> like I mean, truly, like these Chinese jackets with red silk lining oh. or a kind of a saffron jacket with a marigold lining. I thought, you know, this is the stuff I like. This, this is like me. These were my mom's clothes. And so I thought, hmm, maybe we're not so different after all. Mm. So you slowly realize that you shared a taste or a sense of an aesthetic sensibility, but your lives did diverge. I mean, you did work, you raised a family in a different way than your mother did. So are you like your mother? You know, I guess is the question, are are you still different or did you, did you realize, oh, that you're, are you a product? Did you think about the difference between, you know, the time in which she was raised and the time in which you were raised and women's lib and... Well, that's a good question. There was just a review published, a rave review this week. And the title of it was Like Mother, Like Daughter. And I thought, really? And But I guess that's partially what the book is about, is that although we were different professionally, I respected a lot of the ways she lived her life. Um, The civility that she infused things with, not in a fussy way because there's like on the very back of the book that uh, babe was no goody two-shoes. She danced. She stayed up very late. She drank. But her values about how to treat people. Mm. I mean, we had, um, this is just one example. Dan Rather is down in the Gulf of Mexico in Galveston. That Hurricane Carla made Dan Rather's career. And we're all told, we're living in Houston at the time, we're all told to evacuate. Well, We don't know how to evacuate. I mean, a neighbor friend was going to come with us with her five children and the parakeet in the cage. And we had my father's small Studebaker and the three. I mean, it wasn't going to work. So what happened is that everybody, because my mother had a knack for gathering people around. So we all ended up at my parents' house around this a community of candlelight and lanterns for about two days where, where we weren't sure where the hurricane was going to land, hit, smash. Because the last one that hit land in Galveston, I think like 8,000 people died. I mean, it was really serious stuff here. But the point that I learned from that, one of the things I really respect from my mother is her ability to gather people around her for fun. So 
even though that was, uh, in the book I talk about it, Waiting for Carla, was one of the most fun times that I remember as a child because the whole neighborhood was in our house having a good time. So maybe mom wasn't in New York City on deadline uh, writing for a magazine or writing books, but her values as it related to people and people wanting to be part of her circle, I was always impressed by because I think there is a loneliness in a lot of people's lives. And she had an ability to create a tribe and connect with people. Just to go back a little bit, would you tell us a bit about your mother, how she grew up, where she grew up? She grew up in Seattle, Washington. She had uh, three sisters. Mm -hmm. Her father worked for the railroad. And because he had a job, a secure job during the Depression, they, you know, they were not out on the street. So whenever I tried to talk to her about the hard times during the Depression, for her family, luckily, that was not as hard as it was for many. Yeah. Which I'm grateful for. And so what was your relationship like when you were a child? Um, How did you relate to your mom? When I was a child, there's a there's a photo in the beginning of the book, which I adore. Mom's got us dressed in matching gingham summer outfits. I got a gingham halter on with ruffles. You know, it's probably like red and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, mom's got exactly the same thing on. So as a kid, I think we, my memories are wonderful. It was only by the time I got to be nine or 10 when I started rebelling and going, no, no, no ruffled blouses for me. And I would get these really starch shirts with cuffs and I'd borrow my dad's cufflinks. And, you know, now I think, God, you know, I must not have been that much fun to be around. <laughs> um, no, like you mean as a, as a nine-year-old? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the scoldy little daughter. Oh, you know, no more yeah. ruffled blouses for me, mom, you know. That might work for you, but I'm different. Yeah, I was definitely, I'm still a scoldy little daughter. <laughs> All I do is scold my parents. Um, uh, can, can I tell you a, a scoldy story? Please. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so my father was an inventor. He invented equipment that was used in shipyards mm. uh, around the country. But at this point, he was just starting out. And because he has a small company, in the beginning, he was not only the inventor and the manufacturer, but the salesperson. And so he would go on these sales trips down the West Coast from Seattle, where they lived, down to Astoria, down to Portland. And sometimes, because my mom um, uh, uh, would go along with him because my grandmother, her mother, lived with us and she could take mm. care of us. But sometimes I got to tag along on these road trips. And my dad would go into the important business meeting at like Todd Shipyard. And my mom and I would wait out in the car in the industrial parking lot where she would embroider Mm -hmm. pillowcases and dish towels and tablecloths while she was waiting for dad. This is where the scoldy little kid comes in. And I'm going like, no way. Dad is inside at an important business meeting, and she's stitching? I mean, Mm -hmm. there should be something more important for her to do now. I didn't know many professional women then, but so I'm not sure what I thought she should aspire to rather than stitching, but... But you intuitively thought there must be something else. Yes, but, but see, this is the beauty of when you write a book like this is that... And what's, what's wonderful for me as a writer, because I was surprised by that story. I, I, I remember being a scoldy little kid and going, God, just stitching, Mom. 
And when I asked her about that not so long ago, she said, well, your dad always said what a comfort it was for him when he came out of a meeting and I was there and he had someone to talk to. And if the meeting had gone well, he had someone to celebrate with. And if the meeting hadn't gone well, he had someone to commiserate with. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from that is that that they weren't afraid of leaning in. And they didn't need to read Sheryl Sandberg's book. Sorry, Sheryl. Mm-hmm. Um, they just intuitively knew that they were, um, they were a team. And what was your mother's reaction when you started working and, you know, decided that you wanted to pursue this life that was so different from hers? Was she supportive or did she think that you should, you know, stitch? Well, when I announced that I was leaving for New York City, it was my, this was years ago, of course, when there were, um, and my father said to me, well, um, that's fine. I'd been working at the Houston Post newspaper as a reporter. My father said, well, that's fine. You can go to New York, but you'll never get to call home collect. And that, and that to me was scary because I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I probably won't even be able to afford to call home. So um, my, my mother, I think, was supportive. She used to come and uh, visit me in New York and had a good time doing that. It was so different from her world, but she loved my books that I wrote and was very proud of them. Did you ever feel that she was somehow not living vicariously through you, but that she saw in your accomplishment, you know, something that she couldn't have have had herself, you know, because of the expectations on women when, when she was your age? Well, I don't think of it that way. I'll tell you another story. When I was in junior high school and high school, I would go to speech tournaments. And it ha- they were very popular in Texas at that time. And at one speech tournament I went to, I happened to win five first places. I mean, this was a big, big deal. This is not where they gave trophies to everyone to show up. This, <laughs> this is when there'd be a thousand people there and I happened to be, you know, I was the force. And so I came home and I had all these trophies and all these medals and I was lining them up along the ledge of the TV. And my mother said to me, don't let that go to your head. Don't get conceited about that. Uh, She said, you know, I ironed the blouse you wore. So she wanted some credit for participation, but hey, mom, I did the work. So she was also pointing out that you know, there are other forms right. of work. Yeah. She did the work too. Yeah. Work to happen. Right. Yeah. right. yeah. And if she, if she had not done that, if she hadn't supported you in other ways, you wouldn't even have gotten to go maybe. Maybe. Right. Yeah. No, the, they were very supportive. And this also, this brings me to another thing because one of the things that strikes me about several of the lessons that you include from your mother in the book is that there's a way in which you can boil them down to a values around reciprocity and generosity. Oh, I like um, that. I, kind I of really like, like that. I mean, for example, there's like bringing something to a party, right? The thing, don't ever show up empty-handed. That's like a thing that I remember my mom also talked to me about. Sending thank you notes, another thing that my mom is obsessive about. Sharing with others, giving and receiving flowers, those sorts of things. Can you talk a little bit about how your mother understood reciprocity and generosity and how that shaped you as maybe a younger woman and also as an adult? Well, I think I took some of these lessons from my mother a little too much to heart. Mm. And sometimes like the thing like never show up empty handed, which 
my parents didn't have a lot of money back then, but if they ever went to somebody's house, they were loaded with stuff to bring, you know, some of my mother's clam dip. My father always brought booze. It was a, it was a form of um, reciprocity in that people are inviting them to their home, and it was a way to welcome yourself in. But then I think the part of it that I think I took too much to heart is like if someone comes to my place, like for a weekend or something, and they've told me what they need, you know, they need this special kind of milk in the refrigerator, and they can only have gluten-free this and that, and they, then they come, and, um, and they don't even have a tulip for me. You know, which is sort of our, our family thing. You come with flowers and open heart. And so and my husband kind of goes, you know, I think you're taking that a little too hard, Joe. So maybe I interpret them. Maybe. maybe I think she- that seems fair. Yeah. I would also get a fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring me a, just some fancy soap. Yeah. yeah. Something. Steve soap. Okay, I'll remember that. Oh, yeah. So, so um, <laughs> sort of going off of this idea about generosity and reciprocity. Could you tell us a little bit about the lessons in this book? So what, give us an example of one of the lessons that you, you talk about. One of, well, I have many favorites, but one of the first ones that comes to mind is don't be drab. And what I like about this, and, and this probably goes back to when I was about nine years old, mm-hmm. and uh, my mom was pregnant with my sister. And this is when women wore maternity dresses, so that wouldn't show, you know, not like now where you, they have these jersey tight and everyone sees, yeah. you know, the baby growing at the grocery store. Would you store. describe what one of, if, if a listener can't pick, I can picture it, but right. if a listener can't picture it, describe what one of those might have looked okay, like. Okay, well, this one, this particular one, this don't be drab maternity dress, at the neckline, it had pleats that went all the way down to, you know, full length, and it was a red-orange. And when mother leaned over all, there was this cascade of red and orange pleats. And that's how I always thought of my mom in these wonderful, bright colors. Mm. And her idea about wearing color and being colorful was not about, look at me, how cool I am and how attractive I am, although she did believe in being attractive. But her idea was really about being attractive in attracting people to her like let's be let's be friends and i've had that experience all the time i mean i was just in austin last week doing a tv segment and the host of the show who i don't know i mean i don't i'm not in austin and he saw me in my red outfit and he said he couldn't resist coming over and he didn't know that I was going to be on a show. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. And he said he didn't, he couldn't resist coming over and introducing himself because the red attracted him to me mm-hmm. as an individual. And I've had that happen a lot. We should say um, for uh, listeners who can't see you, you are actually at this interview, you are wearing a red top and red, and red glasses. glasses. <laughs> so you are, even when... In a dark studio. In a dar- <laughs> and in a dark studio, yeah. And even when um, the viewers or listeners can't even really see what you're wearing, you are still holding true to that uh, to that yeah. lesson. Yeah. Yeah. When did this click for you where you thought, you know, she was right. She was right. I want to wear, you know, I don't want to be drab. I want to be generous always. I mean, what was that moment when you realized, I want to be like my mother because she, she had a good outlook? Um, well... I think I incorporated a lot of her values um, when I probably was in my 30s and 40s and 50s. But it wasn't really until probably 
my 50s or 60s when I really thought, oh, you know what? Um, I, I think we, we have more in common than I was giving her credit for. Was there ever a time where your mother, you know, said to you, you know, I don't even recognize who you are. You, you, you're wearing the dark colors. Your hair's not brushed. You, you're, you know, I, I don't, I don't know who you are. No, they could have said that uh, about my first husband, who uh, was really a, a, a madman. Um, you know, why uh, are you attracted to that guy? But they respected that I, I flew off to New York and made a career, and so th- there wasn't that kind of. I think they were in awe that um, that I did it and I was successful and whatever I seemed to do succeeded. And that just wasn't her life, but they respected what I was able to do. Mm. Are there still lessons that you are getting from your mom that you have not included in the book? Or is there there something where you're like, oh my God, I just just talked to her (laughs) and she, she just taught me something and... My well, God, I wish I could have included it. Well, you know, the if my mom is unfortunately not around now, but if I, I guess I was um, at Annapolis recently at a book festival, and someone in the audience asked me, "Is there a question you would like to have asked mm-hmm. your mom?" And I and I thought about it, and I thought, "Yeah, how do you deal with death? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you really deal with death?" Because um, she outlived her husband. She outlived her three sisters. She outlived all of her friends. I mean, my God, you know, somebody dies around me, just one person, and I go into tailspin. I don't deal well with death. And she mm-hmm. dealt just really well. I mean, and uh, once I was asking her about it, this was after dad died, and she's packing her suitcase to go to Europe with my sister. And, you know, I'm expecting like, oh, she's going to be in Strasbourg and be depressed. And her attitude is, was life is for the living. And, um, you know, here I am in New York City, you know, going to, you know, psychotherapists. And uh, I mean, really. And she just um, just had a, a, a different outlook. That's really beautiful. Unfortunately, we have to end there. But this is these have all been really great lessons. And I'm wondering if just in kind of closing, is there any advice that now you would give your younger self kind of with all the lessons now that you've processed from your mom, like all the experiences that you have, like what would you tell your younger self? To be less scoldy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. All right. We have been speaking with Joe Giese, author of Never Sit If You Can Dance, Lessons from My Mother. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 